Nati me saranang anyang, puto me saranang varang, hetena sajavajena, soti me hotu sabada, nati me saranang anyang, dambo me saranang varang, hetena sajavajena, soti me hotu sabada. Nati me saranang anyang, sangho me saranang varang, hetena sajavajena, soti me hotu sabada. It is a great pleasure to join you in the midst of your two-month retreat. And this evening I'm happy both to see all of you who are staying, the 25 or so of you, and also to be in the company of the new team of teachers, some of whom are sitting up here and around the room that will be more formally introduced to you as we go on. Um, and I've had the chance to sit here the last week or 10 days and to be in the hall a bit as well. So I felt blessed by just being part of the energy of your practice and I appreciate it very much. And what I'd like to do tonight is give a short Dharma talk not a razzle-dazzle Dharma talk, but a kind of simple one that I hope is fitting to the simplicity of the day after other people left. Um, because it's been a kind of secret, quiet day for you all. Uh, you know, one month trash disappeared and left this great open space. And I'm not speaking of the people, of course, you know what I mean, but of all the stuff around. And it's a beautiful thing to sit with this kind of stillness that has come to you over this long month of practice. It's beautiful and it's rare. Whether it's modern culture that we know is filled with complexity and speed and confusion often because we live in it. Or, not to make light of just modern culture, traditional culture. I just came back from a journey in January and February to Burma and Thailand. Part of the time I was working with the projects of the Foundation for the People of Burma. We were way up in the mountains on the border of China and Thailand and Burma in these relatively remote villages, quite poor, where we were doing projects of water systems and schools and so forth. In these remote villages, the average woman had 11 or 12 children, um, five or six whom died before they were age 18. This is what you did as a woman. You, at age 15 or 16, you got married and you started producing children who were the 
human life energy that would keep the village going, the ones that survived. So it's not just modern life that um, keeps us busy, but life as a human being on this earth can be terribly demanding. And yet at the same time in Thailand and Burma were these beautiful monasteries and nunneries, places where people stepped out of the complexity or the survival necessity to practice as you are and reflect on humanity, on being a human being. And it was beautiful to go back to places that I'd been 40 years before and see people still sitting there. Not the same people, mind you, in most cases, but the new cycle, the new generations of people doing what you are doing. Really beautiful to see. So we, here we are in the midst of this long and deep retreat after this kind of secret, quiet day. And you get to practice with two forms of magic. One of my old friends who was a monk at Ajahn Shah's monastery, forest monastery, uh, years ago with me, um, was a, also a Westerner. Doug Burns was a monk and a meditator, but also an explorer and an amateur magician. And what he liked to do was go to really remote places where they'd never seen white people before, you know, or Europeans. And by way of introduction, he would do magic tricks through the people in the village, you know, sleight of hand, make coins appear from people's ears and juggle things and have things appear and disappear. And he said, got really interesting when you were way out there. And instead of trying to figure out how you did it, they would imitate your voice and your gestures as if to call on the gods to make the magic happen for them too. The great magic that you have been practicing with for this long month is the magic of mindfulness and the magic of love. And the magic of mindfulness, when the Buddha said, is this a most wonderful way for living beings to awaken, to free themselves, to reduce and release themselves from suffering and sorrow and find freedom. Mindfulness is the quality which allows us to step back from or become the space of knowing, of experience, rather than being lost in it. To neither judge it nor grasp it nor identify with it but simply to notice, ah, oh, this is human experience as it's happening, as if we're in a movie and we've been so lost in the plot, a romantic comedy, an adventure story, a tragedy, you know, a teenage movie. I mean, I don't know what movies you were playing during this last month, but I know you were playing some of them, I have no doubt. And then there's the moment, many of them, where you go, oh, that's a movie, isn't it? Wow, look at that, all those characters. A lot of emotion, very believable, isn't it? Starring you-know-who, right? 
moi, says Miss Piggy. You know, there we are somehow a part of that movie. And mindfulness goes, oh, yeah, this is the dance of life. Let us see it as it is without being caught by it, without being lost in it. Let us know it for what it actually is. And it's this most wonderful way of inviting the space of freedom. Mindfulness and love, the other magic. And just as mindfulness or awareness is magic, it is the magic thing that takes us out of the spell of our life. Love, the other magic, which is just a different side of the coin of mindfulness, is the connection of all things like gravity that, you know, pulls the moons of the planets into orbit around them and pulls the planets into orbit around the sun and drops Isaac Newton's apple onto his head and, you know, pulls things together um, because they are together. They all, we all came out of the same Big Bang or something like that or the same great awakening of consciousness and life. And we're not separate. And metta, which you've been practicing, is really returning to the space that knows this non-separation, this connection, this love. And love is a mystery. Nobody really knows what it is any more than they know what gravity is. But yet we would die without it. And we can feel it and inhabit it and it, it, it awakens and connects us. So you have these two great magics. And as you sit with them, things start to get quieter. I'll read some passages from the Buddha tonight. He says, master your senses, what you taste and smell, what you see and hear. In all things, be the master of what you do and say. Be mindful, be free. Are you quiet? Quiet your body, quiet your mind. Awaken yourself, see clearly the way things are and live with joy and freedom here and now. Follow the truth of the Dharma, reflect on it, make it your own, it will sustain you. And so you're doing this, you're practicing in this beautiful way, quieting yourself. And things have gotten quieter. And tending to your practice in this lovely way with mindfulness, with metta. Tending maybe the way a gardener tends to, you know, or the way a, a potter or a skilled craftsperson tends to something that they care about. You're quieter than you know. And as you quiet, time and space open up. You get quieter and the sense of time, past and future, starts to fall away and you realize there is only the eternal present. There's only now. Resting in the present. 
space opens up, me, inside, outside, other, starts to dissolve, the whole space of mind opens up. And you shift, little by little, from being lost more in distraction and temptation, frustration, all those states, to the space of mindfulness and metta that can bow to what's present. Oh, yes, this too. Here's frustration. Here's this movie of romance or of fine dining, you know, or the weather channel, whatever movie happens to come on. And as you go, ah, yes, this too, and rest in the space of mindfulness, there comes a deepening, a relaxing into the present, a devotion to being present that is both demanding and inviting. The words from the Buddha again. He says, Here a person reflecting and practicing wisely avoids wild elephants, wild bulls, poisonous snakes, snakes, brambles, cliffs, cesspits, sewers, brambles, uh, stumps, wild bulls. Reflecting wisely as one practices day by day and moment by moment, one sees the entanglement in sorrow, in vexation, in fever, in clinging, and one releases these. One lets them go. One turns from them. One sees them and releases them and is free. And so all these things come, the movies, the distractions, the temptations, and they're not bad and they're not to be judged. They're simply to be bowed to and seen, oh, this is bramble and this is a cliff and this is fear and this is confusion. This is what it is. And rest in the stillness of the present, in the space of mindfulness itself. What you do as you sit here is to explore what in Zen is called the great matter or the great question. You dedicate yourself, as the Buddha did, to turning toward the mystery of this human condition. And you see suffering and its causes and its end, moment by moment, in many, many ways. You see love and compassion and its blessings. You see entanglement. And you see freedom. And moment by moment, the invitation as your practice deepens is to live with wisdom, to be a lamp unto yourself, as the Buddha said, to make of yourself a light, to rest here and now and see, oh, this is entanglement, and here is the space of mindfulness and freedom, inviting, immediate, open-handed, said the Buddha, liberating.
the spaces of awareness and stillness and consciousness that open up in meditation are both beautiful and remarkable in that as we enter them, we feel a rightness, a a presence, sometimes a sense of purity, stillness, clarity, that rings true to us. Ah, yes, this is what it means to be in the present. And I noticed in sitting these last 10 days that as I got quieter from this long voyage and travel in Asia and came back to stillness, it was as if I'd had a dream one morning and woke up this beautiful dream and written it down and talked about it and then gone about my day and by mid-afternoon I could remember a few elements in the dream and by the evening I remembered a couple of the scenes and remembered that the dream was an important one but the whole flavor of the dream was mostly gone. But in the dream itself, in that morning when I woke up or remembered the dream that was just there, it was so alive. And coming back to sit, it felt as if I was returning to a stillness and depth of presence that I've known forever and then lose, forget, kind of remember, but not so clearly. And yet, of course, it's always here. We're surrounded by this vast silence, just waits for us to drop into it. And one of the beautiful things, being at the Shwedagon Pagoda in Rangoon, walking around this enormous pagoda that's kind of like a a golden Eiffel Tower filled with pilgrims and temples all around and an enormous stillness is that all around is this beautiful reminder of liberation. Everywhere you turn in Thailand and Burma, the stupas and the images, you can awaken. Your Buddha nature is but a breath away. Well, meditation brings us back to this ever-present, still, open, wise heart, our own Buddha nature. Now is the time in the midst of the two months to tend to the stillness and presence that's grown in you. The Pali phrase yoni manasik, yoni so manasikara means wise or caring attention. And I think about it as tending or incubating or holding in some way. Holding in a gracious way, the way you'd hold a child, or tending the way you would tend a garden, or incubating the way you have this wonderful egg you found. You don't even know what's going to hatch out of it. Make sure that it's safe and warm. 
There's some way in which you incubate yourself here, you hold yourself in your practice. And sometimes it's not so easy. It's a little bit like you're riding a bicycle and sometimes you get wobbly, it goes too slow, and you have to sort of speed up a little bit. The hindrances of mind arise. But at this point in the retreat, what also comes is you begin to see the gaps in the hindrances. You begin to rest in the space that's not just the space of frustration or restlessness or sleepiness. Those come and go, but the space of awareness gets bigger. And having practiced mindfulness and loving-kindness, one abandons ill will and becomes sympathetic to the welfare of oneself and all beings. One abandons dullness and drowsiness and dwells resting in lightness, lightheartedness, mindfulness, clarity. One dwells having abandoned restlessness or worry at ease within oneself. As if a person who had been sick and gravely ill, who could not eat, recovered from the illness and could enjoy their food and bodily strength, or a person who was a servant to others, unable to go where they want, was released from bondage and would be filled with gladness to go where they choose. Or a person with wealth and possessions traveling on a dangerous or desert road with scarce food and water, crossed safely and arrived at the village free from danger. There would be gladness and joy. So too, as you practice, there is the abandonment of that which entangles us and the resting in the inner heart of stillness, of mindfulness, of presence. And so these other things will arise, of course, but at this point they're not the only game in town. And you're able instead, periodically, as you practice, to step back or relax or rest just where you are. You've been walking mindfully, and feeling the breath and noting what arises and passes. And then at some points, just like you're riding the bicycle and you start to feel quite stable, it doesn't take much effort at this point. And there's a quality of presence and wakefulness and mindfulness that just arises. Like a goldsmith who from time to time lights the fire, takes the gold with a pair of tongs and puts it in the furnace. And from time to time the goldsmith blows on it. From time to time the goldsmith sprinkles water on it. And from time to time the goldsmith examines it closely. For if he were to blow on the gold continuously, it would be too heated. And if he were to sprinkle water in it continuously, it would be too cooled. And if the goldsmith were only to examine it closely, without the proper heat, the gold would not come to perfect refinement. But, said the Buddha, if from time to time the goldsmith attends to each of these three functions, 
sometimes blowing on it to heat it, sometimes water to cool it, and then sometimes simply being present. The gold will gradually become pliant, workable, bright, luminous, and can be used for any purpose. And so too with one's meditation. So you practice and devote and dedicate yourself. One step, lifting and placing one spoonful of food in eating meditation, breath by breath. And then there comes a sense of presence. And it's almost like you've been Michelangelo up there painting on the ceiling for a long time. And then you step down the ladder and you look and you say, oh yeah, look at this whole big painting. You get a bit quiet and then you step back and here's the breath and Here's well-being arising, and here's the sense of lightness coming in the body, and here's the play of things, the impermanence arising and passing, and here's the truth of dukkha and clinging that shows itself. And it's as if in the stillness and presence, the Dharma wants to teach you, and all it asks is your presence to it. One of the beautiful things you learn in meditation is that the awakened heart and mind has many different flavors, like a rainbow. When light passes through a crystal and it breaks into the different wavelengths, you get red and orange and yellow and green and blue and purple and all the intermediate shades from that white light. In the same way, as consciousness gets still with mindfulness, resting in the present, and loving kindness, different facets show itself. Sometimes it's mostly the silence. Sometimes it's a deep sense of the beauty of life. Sometimes it's a sense of gratitude that arises. Sometimes it's an unwavering steadiness and concentration. Sometimes it's a clear knowing this is what is so, this is the way things are. You can't make this happen. You dedicate yourself, the potter, the painter, the gardener, you tend, you incubate, you hold. And some hours it's like, okay, lifting, moving, placing, rising, falling in and out of the breath, chewing, tasting, swallowing, it's just being present, wandering, restless. And as you tend and hold and incubate, some moments it falls into place, it clicks in, it opens. Things just are as they are, and they show themselves as if a kind of grace arises. The grace 
of presence, the grace of freedom, the grace of love. And your task, like the goldsmith, sometimes you blow on it, sometimes you sprinkle a little water, and sometimes when things seem to be opening, you sit and allow them to open. You walk and allow them to open with interest, dedicated, with a presence and an openness to what's so. And wisdom comes. Ajahn Chah famously puts it this way. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will clearly see the nature of all things. You'll see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So as you sit and walk and practice the meditation in all the postures, bring yourself into the reality of the present. This great and rare and beautiful dance of awakening that is taking place in monasteries and temples across Asia still and has been for centuries thousands of years, takes place within you. You become the temple of awakening. You become the Buddha sitting and walking and seeing with compassion, mindfulness and inner freedom, the arising and passing of all things. Now what's important for you to keep in mind as well at this point in the retreat is that as you continue to tend and incubate and hold and allow your presence and meditation to deepen, which it will, there is tomorrow afternoon going to be a flood of new people joining you. Of course, you're well aware of this. And people think, ew, it's so quiet without them. They will come thundering in a little bit because they can't help it. They've just gotten out of their cars from the freeway. They've just finished the last, you know, 237 emails to get out of the way before they came. They've just come off an airplane from Frankfurt or Cincinnati. And they're tired and exhausted and looking forward to the retreat and can't even find their feet, much less their nose or their breath. And even though many are good yogis, and they're all good folks, they'll be thumping around for a few days. It's how it is. I don't know if this is politically correct or not, to use this word, but I would say don't be prissy about it, basically. I just came back again from Asia, and you sit in a monastery in India or Thailand or Burma, 
You know, and as the Buddhist texts say, there are gadflies, and there are, you know, there is cold and there's wind, and you sit at the foot of a tree, or there you are in this temple, and there's movie music, you know, at the wedding ceremony right on the other side of the gate, and they're doing construction in the temple, and the two buildings over, you know, and then they decide to send some people to live in the rooms around you, um, or you're in a hall with 400 people in the big temple that I went into, and people sit quietly, it's quite moving, but then some come in and some go out, and there are visitors who come to look, and in some ways it helps your practice because you're not always looking for the perfect conditions where nobody's going to open the door. Oh my God, somebody came in late and I heard the whisper of the door open and it ruined my samadhi. <laughs> what kind of samadhi is that? You know, that's not samadhi, that's clinging. The Buddha says, sit at the foot of a tree, do not mind the heat of the sun, the cold of the wind, the, the gadflies and insects. I mean, you, you're not at the root foot of a tree. You know, here we are. You have, relatively speaking, concierge practice here, right, compared to most places. So they will come in, and you'll have your feelings. Oh, it's not as quiet as it was. My dormitory, I hear them thumping around. You might even feel a sense of loss. You might feel a little grief. I miss the other people who are here. I don't know who these strangers are. It'll be discombobulating. It will touch your emotions. Your childhood traumas will get activated. I'm sorry, I can't help myself tonight. It's fine. It's good practice. It's not going to interrupt your retreat if you practice with it. If you take it as a problem, it could become a problem, and you can be frustrated and so forth. If you say, oh, this is noise, this is energy, let me tend and hold and incubate with love my own practice, and let me have compassion for these people who are coming in who are as I was a month ago, and could really use your compassion for the first few days as they begin to settle down. Then what comes will deepen your practice. It really can. I visited this one little nunnery in many of the projects that we were working with in this trip, and two of the nuns that were running it, one was 39 and one was 41, um, was very interested in, in the women's lineages of teachings in Thailand and Burma on this trip. Um, lovely nuns, they looked like they were 16. They didn't look like they were 39, the way it happens there. And it turned out one of them was a really accomplished scholar. Both of them were good scholars. But one had come placed first in the national examinations all across Burma as, one of the, as the greatest scholar of the Buddhist texts of that particular year or decade. A really amazing, wise person. Her sister was also wise. And they were not only scholars, but they were on their way to do more deep meditation when the cyclone hit last year. And they went back to a village temple in the Delta. Much of the village was destroyed, and there were all these children who needed someone to take care of them. So they said, oh, we'll take them. We'll take the girls. And they built this little bamboo nunnery themselves with these 18 girls. A lot of bamboo. We all went in a group of, there was a dozen or more of us, 
Americans, I thought it was going to fall over because we weighed, you know, three times as much as anybody else in there, each one of us. And it kind of shook a little bit. We sat down. And um, they recited some of their teachings and they had their little, little um, chalkboards that they were learning on and they did a little chant for us and talked about the nuns in charge, talked about what they were teaching them. And then I asked at some point, I said to them, do you have any regrets, you know, taking on these 18 young girls? The youngest was five years old, six years old, eight years old, and somewhere up like 13, that you're not able to now continue to practice in the way you had scholarship in these retreats. And the Lunds looked back, the two in charge, as if I'd asked the most bewildering question, said, what do you mean not practice? The Buddha has given us these girls. What a beautiful practice. And the place was so filled with metta. These two nuns running it were like their mommies now for all these girls. And the girls were just sitting there smiling with their mommies. And it was just so filled with love um, that when they said, the Buddha has given us this as a practice, how can we not take what comes as a practice? Again, from the words of the Dhammapada, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among those who are troubled. Look within, be still, freed from fear and grasping, Come to know the sweet joy of living in the way. And so it's not that those things won't come just as the circumstances won't change. They will. People will come be these things. They're actually your Dharma brothers and sisters. They're your long-lost family coming to be with you. Good family, Dharma family. I know in America when you say family, you have to be really careful. <laughs> Some of you don't want your long-lost family to find you, but... They're your Dharma brothers and sisters, you know, and it's a sweet, sweet thing that you get to have made and tended and hold and incubate the space of stillness for yourself, your own body and heart and mind, and now to welcome them in and they'll feel it and they will drop in a few days into the space with you. It's actually not that hard. I mean, you'll have your waves and you'll have your emotions and those are fine. Things should be as they are, but it's a beautiful practice and, you know, a generous one to be in this place of stillness, to treasure it tomorrow and tonight as you continue, um, and then to tend and hold to it as the wake of the waves get a little bit big for a few days. Not that big, not that bad, and as they settle down. The Buddha said that not only is mindfulness magic, he said it's the best magic of all. Because if you look at the movies, you know, there's every kind of movie. You know, science fiction movies, amazing worlds that are created, and documentaries, and, you know, there's every kind of story. 
But the real magic is to step back and say, wow, this is a movie. We could make any movie. This is the light and the projector and the, you know, the cameras. The great magic of mindfulness is to see this life itself, this human life, and to see in a way that brings illumination and freedom no matter what happens. And you are learning that. You're deepening in it. You're sensing it and finding it in your own way. Um, and this, says the Guru, is the great magic, the magic of liberation. So thank you for listening. Let's sit for a moment. out laughing when I said, let's sit for a moment, because the stillness after it is so strong that it's not a moment, yeah, it's the, it's the eternal moment. We could, I could say, let's sit for an hour, or let's sit for the evening, and you're just here. I mean, you may not feel that, you feel all the waves in yourself, but it is so palpable. It's not, let's sit for a moment, let's really be present, and it's just beautiful in here. It's just great. So you're in it. Enjoy it. The others will come in and, you know, swim in it with you. Tend it. Incubate. Hold. Stay present. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.